The title of this evening's talk is Practice Here, Practice There, Practice Everywhere. So, here we all are, coming uh, close to the end of our intensive practice period here, soon to be taking yourself, taking your practice out there, wherever there is for you. Which actually, uh, most of you, for most of you, will entail uh, a much longer period of intensive practice with the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. I think that many of us come to the end of a retreat with some thoughts and some feelings that aren't really so dissimilar from those that we came into retreat with. For many people, though, there's maybe a feeling of excitement and readiness to go into an extended period of intensive practice. For some, just before it's time to enter in, uh, there may be the feeling of, well, I'm, I'm really not quite finished out here. I just need a few more days, another week, so that I can do everything that needs to be done, and then, then I'll be ready to go into retreat. And for some of us, it seems that we have similar thoughts like this when it comes to the end of an intensive retreat period. Well, just a little more time. A few more days would be helpful. A week, a month would really, really be helpful. (coughs) And then I'll be finished. Then I'll be ready to come out. Then I'll be ready to go back out there. And sometimes on either end, the going in and the coming out, there may be some degree of reluctance, resistance, maybe some fear of the unknown or fear of the seeming known, or maybe maybe essentially just fear of change, fear of ending one way and then entering into another way. And for some, the anticipation of a retreat, there's this feeling of great urgency, this feeling of, I just can't wait to get into a retreat again. And then, as it comes to the end, maybe on the other end of the retreat time, Some people can hardly wait to get out of retreat. I want out of here now. I can't wait to get back to regular life. So you might check in with yourselves and see if there may be some of these kinds of thoughts and 
feelings. Similar patterns maybe are within your own mind and heart that are coming up now at the end of the retreat that maybe you also experienced at the onset of the retreat. And, of course, we, we may not feel any anxiety or any other very strong mental states in either direction, entering into or coming out of retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might just feel a pretty clear, clean, open readiness and a feeling of uh, ease and happiness without any particular expectations or, or particular worries about just moving on to the next thing, moving on to the next phase and form that life will take. At a retreat that I taught some years ago, <clears throat> one person described coming out of retreat as feeling like she was, she said, descending landing, she said, feeling the force of gravity coming back to earth. There's a very beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swicart regarding his experience <clears throat> traveling in outer space. And this is what he has what he wrote. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there, and they are like you, they are you, and somehow you represent them. You are up here, a sensing element. That's a point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself. The heart and mind that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. 
And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference, and it's so precious. And of course, as we all know, there is a change about to happen. And also, of course, we're aware of the various changes that occurred during this time in retreat. And so reflecting on the supports available to you as we begin to make the change out of retreat life into life in the larger world. One change being the pace of life, at least outwardly. Life appears to and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of an intensive retreat. And yet, we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice of how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body, mind, and heart. How quickly and incessantly things change all around us, even in the slowed, slowed down pace of retreat life. This understanding, this wisdom, is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice to practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness or moment-to-momentness, in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And maybe you've had some taste of the impersonality of change. You certainly tasted that we can't stop change and that even though we might try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe you've tasted how painful it is to try. As mindfulness and concentration and acceptance and kindness towards yourself and others developed over these weeks, you've had some glimpse that whatever it is that you experience in the body, the mind, and the heart, that any of these experiences, whatever they are, whatever they've been, come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it, whatever it is, changes, and it changes quite quickly, or it just simply disappears. These 
taste, this understanding, has a very deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices that we make. More connection and clarity in our relationships to others. More clarity with what's important and appropriate, what's wholesome and what's truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is really a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down, a life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of a retreat. So this is certainly a change from here to there. Life in retreat offers actually very little outside distraction. We sit, we walk, listen to Dhamma talks, listen to morning reflections. You eat, you do your yogi job, you sleep. You've spoken just a little bit every few days during practice meetings. And within this container of simplicity, you've been encouraged and supported to develop a depth of clarity of focused attention and to mindfully pay attention to what occurs with each breath and also what occurs in the body, in the mind, in the heart. And you've been invited to sense and see and know is the mind, the heart, opening to, connecting with, and receiving the breath or various other occurrences in the body-mind continuum? Or is the attention spaced out, disconnected, separated, or caught, or stuck in some physical phenomena, or some thought form, or some mental state? With all of this practice and learning bringing us closer to sensing and seeing and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease and calm, joy, and what brings a sense of well-being. You're learning to recognize, respect, care about, and attend to all of these cycles within your mind, heart, and body. This sensing and seeing and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. We're all really so similar no matter who we are, where we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color. Really, we're 
just all variations on themes. We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, living respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart. As we come to see and to know through our intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language. It affects our actions. Seeing into our own mind and heart affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of engaging the refuges and maybe also the precepts as part of your daily practice. Maybe beginning the day, chanting them to yourself. This can be quite a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts and our words and our actions. There's a particular rendition of the precepts that was written by a woman named Stephanie Kaza, uh, who used to live at the Green Gulch Zen Farm. And uh, I'd like to share these with you. I don't think I shared them at the beginning of the retreat, but even if I did, it's good to hear them again. (laughs) Because the way that she has uh, written this or worded this, it's really quite relevant uh, to daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. 
knowing how deeply our lives intertwine. We vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, as may also unfold for some of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of a retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in retreat and outside of retreat, uh, outside of a retreat setting, in a way that serves and supports this process of the purification of the heart and mind. And sometimes this happens through the conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction. As practice deepens and as it matures, there's more and more often a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the various distractions in our life that don't serve the awakening process that we're learning about and that we're committed to. And very often it's around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. I'd like to offer an example that I usually offer uh, at the end of retreats uh, uh, that I teach because it's it's still uh, in place for me. There was a time when I would get into my car and I would automatically turn on the radio. I don't know, radios, tapes, you know, CDs, all that stuff. But for me, it was the radio. And at some point, I began to uh, notice, I began to notice it as a distraction. So I decided not to turn it on all the time, every time I got in my car. So I'd begin driving somewhere, and my hand would kind of automatically start coming up and begin moving towards the radio knob. The force of habit is really, really strong. So mindfully I'd bring my hand back down again. And at some point I began noticing the thought to turn on the radio. Then the choice was available. To or not to. So looking at another change, in this simple and quiet space of retreat, there may have been some big days or big events for you. An especially big day or big event for some of you 
might have been something as mundane as our laundry days. For me, there were many times uh, in the early years of my practice, my long intensive retreat practice, when laundry day was such a huge addition to my day that I would find myself planning for it or or just thinking about it uh, before I went to sleep the night before. And then it would be the very first thing that would come into my mind when I woke up in the morning. I suspect some of you know just what I'm talking about. And how about the big event of the midday meal? Now there's a big event. What will we have for lunch today as you're very mindfully walking to lunch? You might even be thinking, what will we have for lunch tomorrow as you're mindfully walking away after lunch? Or maybe in the middle of your lunch today, what will we have for lunch tomorrow? Or the big event of a one-on-one practice meeting. That might be a big event. The wandering Japanese Buddhist poet, Nanao Sakaki, who died just a a few years ago, well, some years ago now, uh, wrote a poem called A Big Day. Getting water at the spring, carrying firewood, chattering with a neighbor, the sun goes down, a big day. Many years ago, many years ago, Nanao used to spend time at the Lama Foundation, which is about 20 minutes from here uh, as the crow flies. Nanao would show up at Lama with his small knapsack and a sleeping bag. Uh, And he'd stay for a few days there, and they were always very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains with just this, nothing more than what he'd arrived with. And he'd often be gone for a couple of weeks. And then he'd be back again at Lama. A dear friend of mine who was the coordinator at the Lama Foundation during those years told me a story um, of one of the times when Nanao had uh, come in for a few days from the mountains. He had his plan to go back out again. And he asked her and another friend if they would like to come out to his camp for dinner uh, in a few days. Well, my friend said they were just delighted. This was something really special. Something, in fact, that had never ever been offered before. So on the appointed day and time, my friend and the other invitee found their way to Nanao's camping spot by following his very careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there was no food ready or or any food in view for dinner. And he told them not to bring anything with them, that it wouldn't be necessary, that there was plenty of food. Well, my friend said they thought, well, maybe they'd made a mistake. Maybe this was the wrong day. But Nanao was really delighted to see them and welcomed them heartily. And then he said, well, now let's go out and find dinner. 
And so my friends said that they walked and they picked and they dug various wild foods. They came back and they built a, a fire and they cooked what needed to be cooked. And she said they had an incredibly delicious dinner. She said they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or sometimes weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong and healthy and very happy. Once someone in a practice meeting spoke about the simplicity of life in retreat as having a good taste. That was her term. She said it has a really good taste. We taste it, this good taste. And we take it with us. It wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes big ways. And as we well know, Life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home and family life, our sangha and monastic community life, our work life, our social life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity. And we often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do. We make choices in the way that we spend time with family, with friends, with partners, with community members. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We truly do have the possibility of simplifying at least to some degree, every aspect of our life. We truly have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course, there are some very complex responsibilities and commitments that we must continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another very beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and inspires the way that we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex uh, activity and relationships and responsibilities. From our experience in retreat practice, we learn, we see, we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing. We find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways 
of being and doing. And we begin then to feel more balance within ourselves and within our life as a whole. And we find that we have more energy and more time available for our life to more directly and more clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. So the possibility of considering our whole life as our practice. How can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? It's really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we begin to integrate a clear, focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all dimensions of our being, making our body, our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play, our creative endeavors, all part of our practice. So, for instance, we can find many moments throughout our day when we can just very simply bring our attention to the sensations of the breath or to the sensations of the body moving or offer a metaphrase to someone or to ourselves. And this can be done in almost any circumstance, any activity. And from this perspective, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really, all of the conditions and all of the relationships in our lives are really wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys and the irritations, the annoyances and the delights the frustrations and the satisfactions, the pleasant and the unpleasant, the likes and the dislikes. All that we experience in life in retreat and in life outside of retreat. This is really all a mirror for our presence. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel a number of years ago now and who had long before I met her lived in a spiritual community in France uh, that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. And she told me a story uh, about her time in the Gurdjieff community, the spiritual community, uh, that's really a wonderful mirror of 
a particular and a difficult life situation in that community being the perfect practice. She said that in this community in France, there was an old man who was very difficult. He was a very difficult, very irascible fellow. She said he was quite messy and quite argumentative. He wouldn't cooperate and he wouldn't help with things and basically she said he didn't get along very well at all in the community. She said that no one there liked him very much and that he himself didn't seem to like very many people in the community either. She said that he tried for quite a while to stay in the community but it was quite difficult for him as well as difficult for the others in the community. So difficult that she said he finally left and he went to Paris. He couldn't bear it anymore. Gurdjieff followed him to Paris and he tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said, no, he just couldn't do it. It was just too hard to be there. Well, Gurdjieff finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back, which the man couldn't refuse because he was a very poor poor person. So he returned. And when he arrived in the community, this woman said that everyone was aghast. <laughs> and they were, she said, even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there <laughs> because they themselves actually had to pay to live in the community. So Gurdjieff called a meeting and he listened to everyone's complaints. And then she said he just laughed and he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him, you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, and the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. (laughs) The conditions of our lives and the people in our lives are all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread. Yeast for the purification of the heart and mind. Yeast for our awakening. Yeast for our liberation. And it's true, as people often query at the end of a retreat, it's true, there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you developed over these weeks a change from how it is in a retreat such as this when we connect with the larger world. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of mindfulness and investigation from how it is in a retreat such as this as we connect with the larger world. And although the same degree and depth of concentration and mindfulness and investigation isn't usually totally sustained outside of a retreat setting. The concentration and mindfulness and investigative 
capacities that developed along with the multidimensional facets of understanding and wisdom that have blossomed for each of you in various ways during this retreat are really a great support and a great protection as we connect with the larger world. There is a change, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness, concentration, investigation, the heart's release that occurs through metta practice, and the continued blossoming of wisdom are always, always available to us. Many years ago, at the end of a two-month retreat with Sada Upandita, my, one of my <coughs> Burmese teachers, and two other Burmese monks who were co-teaching that retreat, I had a brief conversation with one of the monks. And I asked him if there was any advice he could give me around taking practice into the whole of my life. This was at the very end of the retreat. <coughs> and his response was this. He said, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. And that's all he said. Good advice. I never forgot it. We didn't discuss it. it that was it, you know. <laughs> so there are some particular ways that I and others have found to be uh, quite helpful in uh, bringing a simple and yet very direct and immediate focus of mindful attention into our lives. And in relationship to the four Brahma-viharas, the four divine abidings, there's one teaching amongst the 84,000 that it's said that the Buddha offered, uh, where the Buddha uses a metaphor of a mother uh, who has four sons for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings. Metta, unconditional kindness, friendliness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upekka, um, equanimity. Each of the sons in this teaching from the Buddha, because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings. Well, I only have three sons, but they have managed to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can often be some of our best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, what they need from us, and what they give to us, and what they show us. So, an example. My two oldest sons, who turned uh, 54 years old, uh, this month, uh, are identical twins. 
And they continue to show me a relationship that I think is quite rare. They're very close friends. And although when they were little guys, they would fight each other with each other as children do, over all of these years, they've never talked about each other or to each other in negative or judgmental ways. No matter what one or the other is feeling, no matter what one or the other has done or not done, and no matter how the other's life is going. And they're not each other's keeper, meaning that they're respectful to each other. They're not codependent with each other. I think that this is really a rare relationship. And I'm sometimes very much in awe of it. And I continually learn from it. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And a poem by a Turkish poet that's translated, a Turkish poet, and I don't know if I say the name properly, Edeb Kuntsever, something like that. And the translator uh, of of this poem is Richard Tillinghast. And the poem is called Table. A man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that comes in through the window, sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that happened in his mind, what he wanted to do in life. He put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love, the man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine. The man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness. His hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. The key to the door the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn 
by turn moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost a strong, clear, mindful attention that's deeply grounded in concentration and kindness. So in terms of taking practice home and supporting and developing your practice in small and big ways at home, one suggestion is that at the end of each hour of the day, this came from another, a Dharma teacher friend, at the end of each hour of the day, just take one or two minutes to stop, be still, and simply connect with the breath at the Anapana spot or the rising and falling of the breath in the belly. So however long your waking day is, it could be 15 or 30 minutes of a very directly, momentary, focused, mindful time with each of these minutes actually having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry our practice into our daily life is to remember at moments during the day to touch into physical sensation through contact. So the feet on the ground, the bottom touching a chair, couch or a cushion, hands touching each other. In those moments of recognizing, connecting with contact, mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with, and they're strengthened every time we do this. Remembering maybe to do some metaphrases to the drivers that are around you when you're caught in traffic. That might be a change of heart and mind for some of us. The same thing offering metaphrases if you're standing in line at the grocery store and you're in a hurry. Offer a few metaphrases to the people that are in front of you. That could be a practice. I think actually the only hard thing about doing these very brief meditation sessions is to remember to do them. That's the hardest thing about it. I know some people who put uh, little notes to themselves around their home or at their workplace or their study to remind them to check in. So for instance, a note on the bathroom mirror, breathe or breath, 
a little stand-up note maybe on your desk or at home somewhere, still breathing, or metta now, or here now. There was a fellow uh, when I was living at the Insight Meditation Society who was on staff and worked in the front office, and he had a little note on his desk that said, buttocks. <laughs> that was to remind him to bring his attention to the touch points on his bottom, touching the chair every now and then. And it also made people laugh when they came in and read it. <laughs> the former director of the Forest Refuge, Forest Refuge, if some of you don't know, is the long-term practice center for experienced students and on the IM Insight Meditation Society campus. So the former director of the Forest Refuge programmed his computer to sound the ring of a mindfulness bell every 45 minutes uh, to remind him to stop and to check in with his breath for a couple of moments. I found out about this because I was sitting in his office having a meeting with him and the bell rang and he, we sto- he stopped blank stopped in the middle of a sentence and very quickly told me what it was and we sat there for a couple minutes in silence with our eyes closed and then we resumed our meeting it was wonderful really really wonderful walking meditation can be an important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world an important aspect, actually, of continuing to connect with and strengthen concentration and mindfulness. And many of us walk at least a few miles just going from place to place throughout a day, and if not within a day, at least certainly throughout a week. And we can make some of this walking a time of of practice. When I lived at the Inset Meditation Society as the resident teacher for staff, my workroom and my living space uh, was up on the second floor of the main building. And because I did many uh, practice meetings with staff and I had lots of other meetings as well, I didn't have time uh, during the day to do walking meditation. So I made a decision that every time I went up and down the stairs would be my walking practice. And most days I did this after I made that decision. And at one point, a, a staff member came in for his practice meeting with me, and he was, he was obviously quite agitated. Uh, and with uh, difficulty, he told me that he was quite upset because he said I was ignoring him and that he felt abandoned by me. Uh, he said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, he said I wouldn't even look at him, and he was wondering if I was angry with him. So I told him that going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time and that I certainly hadn't abandoned him and I definitely was not angry with him. It's just that I was practicing as deeply as I could going up and down the stairs. Well, this completely changed his attitude. And he said he was really happy for me and he thought it was a great idea. People may not always understand what you're up to when you integrate 
practice into your daily life in small ways. But do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And of course, it's very helpful to connect with others who practice. We certainly uh, see and feel the benefits of this, as some of you have mentioned, in a retreat setting. If you're not connected at least a a couple of times now and then within a month with a group, even just a group of two or three once in a while, check in and see if there's maybe a sitting group where you live. And if there isn't, start one. Which might mean just simply asking one, even one or two or maybe three other people who you know who meditate or who might like to learn how to meditate to join you once a week or every other week. The Buddha, in a conversation with one of his chief, chief disciples, Ananda, uh, spoke about the tremendous importance <clears throat> about the connection with spiritual friends. The Venerable Ananda asked the Buddha, in speaking with the Buddha, said, Half of this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends. He didn't ask, he made a statement. Half of this noble life, O Lord, is good and noble friends. Companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda saying, Don't say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. So use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment as much as is possible be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the great arts in life perhaps really the greatest. And it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, kindness and joy will increase. It's inevitable that peace increases, that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. And another poem from Nanao Sakaki. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, Walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. (laughs) (laughs) So closing the talk...
this evening with a poem by Native American poet Joy Harjo. She calls this Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like Eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky and wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion. Like eagle rounding out the morning inside us, we pray that it will be done in beauty. In beauty. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.